There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. Welcome to episode 32 of the Digital Freemason podcast. For uh, about July 26, 2006. I'm your host, Scott, and I'll be taking you along my excellent adventure through the world of short Masonic educational papers. Many of these papers have been presented in my lodge, King George Lodge, number 59, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. This episode's topic is in regards to the pillars and the globes, and linking back with a topic from a, a few episodes back about what was uh, legendary and what was factual, this one sort of takes a further look back into the world of... Uh, of the Egyptians and sort of some of the things that they had that can be uh, attributed to uh, lodges as they stand today. And in particular, this one deals with uh, with the pillars and the globes that are in the adorn the, the west or the entrance to the uh, to every lodge. So we'll get on with it. it. This is actually an excerpt from a paper that was uh, done by Brother D.B. Wallace uh, of the uh, Lodge Number United Masters Lodge Number 167 in Auckland, New Zealand was originally written in 1914. I have to say this is one of the things that I like about about Freemasonry is articles that were written or research papers that were done 90 years ago are still just as fresh today as they were uh, 1914 when they were written and even earlier. A lot that hasn't changed with the craft which is sort of one of the nice cultural hand railings I like. So here it is Brother Wallace's thoughts on pillars and globes. Our very learned brother, Dr. Albert Churchward, who, besides being high in our Masonic degrees, is an Egyptologist, having an understanding of the hieroglyphics, and has made a study of them in Egypt, tells us that the Egyptians held that their temples, equivalent to our lodges, were supported by three great pillars, known to them as wisdom, strength, and beauty. But in the course of time, and no doubt to impress the commoner people, they defied these attributes, wisdom being represented by Horus, the god of the North Pole Star, strength being represented by Sut, god of the South Pole Star, and beauty by Shu, god of the Equinox. It is self-evident that the change must have been made after the completion of King Solomon's temple. It is almost a certainty that speculative Freemasonry existed amongst the Israelites and neighboring nations at about the time of the building of the temple. Hereon, I will quote at some length from Symbols and Legends of Freemasonry by Brother J. Finley Finlayson, a book which I would recommend to every brother who wishes information on these subjects without the laborious reading of the works of Brother Dr. Gould and others. Moreover, we have most plausible proof in the pages of Scripture that societies of men, known to each other by secret signs, bound together in a brotherhood, and called upon to assist one another in the day of trouble, actually did exist in the days of the biblical narrative. Furthermore, that this brotherhood was not confined to men of one creed or nation, but extended itself over a wide area and to dissimilar needs and circumstances. This assertion is based on the passage of the first book of Kings, where we read, Now the men who did diligently observe whether anything would come from him, and did hastily catch it. And they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadid. 
A resume of the history and circumstances that led up to this singular passage will bring before us its Masonic significance in a most startling manner. After the death of King Solomon and the splitting up of the kingdom of Israel into two parts, the rival kings of Israel and Judah were continually at war with each other. At a period of probably about twenty-five to thirty years after the death of King Solomon, Basha, king of Israel, sought to prevent all communications between the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah, and built the city or fortress of Ramah as a blockade to enforce his intentions. Thereupon Asa, king of Judah, took all of the treasures in the house of the Lord that Shiskat, who, king of Egypt, had not already despoiled him of, and sent it to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabernon, the king of Syria, who dwelt at Damascus, praying his assistance against Baasha, king of Israel. Ben-Hadid acceded to Asha's request, and Baasha was overthrown. Sixty years have passed since the death of King Solomon. Asa had died, and his son, Jehoshaphat, succeeded him as king of Judah. Ben-Hadad, the son of, son of Ben-Hadad H., already spoken of, the grandson of Tambriamam, reigned as king over Syria, and Ahab, the son of Omri, was king over Israel. Ben-Hadad, whose father had fought against Israel at the request of Asa, now entered on the war against Ahab, king of Israel, in which, in two campaigns, he and his army were utterly overthrown and annihilated, and Ben-Hadad himself fell into the hands of his enemies. We have now clearly before us the exact relationship of Ahab and Ben-Hadad. They were the sons of separate fathers. They were in no manner kindred, nor by any tie of affinity could they be called each other brother. They were, above all, hereditary enemies. We will now quote from the quote this test of scripture. And Ben-Hadad fled, and came into the city in an inner chamber. And his servants said unto him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, and I pray thee, put a sackcloth on our, on our loins, and ropes upon our heads, and go out to the king of Israel. Preadventure him, he will save thy life. So they girded the sackcloth on their loins, and put ropes upon their heads, and came to the king of Israel, and said, Thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. And he said, Is he yet alive? Is he is my brother. Now the men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him, and did hastily catch it, and they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadad, they said, Go ye and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came forth to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said unto him, The cities which my father took from thy father I will restore, and thou shalt make streets for thee in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. Then said Ahab, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him, and sent him away. Does not this vivid narrative carry its own comment? Ben-Hadad had fallen into the hands of his enemies. His servants appealed to Ahab, the king, to save his life, and in Ahab's answer they diligently observed whether anything should come from him, and they did hastily catch it. What more natural than Ben-Hadad 
should cause his servants to deliver some secret token to Ahab, which should cause him to return their salutations and to exclaim, Is he yet alive? He is my brother. Then, as an act of brotherly love, which has ever burnt warmly in the true inner life of masonry, he relieved his brother from fear of death and made a covenant with him and sent him on his way. If we may accept this explanation of the text, it is difficult to see where other meanings can possibly attach itself. We have a clear certainty that a fraternity, other than an operative guild, a brotherhood of men, actually existed in times still in touch with the days of King Solomon. Moreover, we have before us one of the most noble examples of the practice of true Masonic virtue that may be found in history of the world. Now, if, as I firmly believe, from the foregoing narrative, the Israelites, either through Moses or from their own sojourn in Egypt, had acquired a knowledge of these ancient mysteries of Egypt, they would, in practice of their rites and ceremonies, make use, as we do, of the three great pillars, wisdom, strength, and beauty. But in all times, all peoples have altered their symbols and legends to suit their circumstances and understanding. And what more probable than that of the Israelites or the children of Judah should alter the names of these pillars to others which would appeal to their national pride? As we know, know definitively that the names of the two pillars which stood at the porchway or entrance of the King Solomon's temple were altered at the time of its building, it is extremely probable that the, the names of the three great pillars were altered at the same time or shortly after. These two great pillars are the pillars which stood at the porch or entrance of King Solomon's temple and have no connection with the three great pillars. According to Brother Dr. Churchward and to other good authorities, the Egyptians built their temples due east and west, and at the entrance in the east were placed two pillars, one on either side. These pillars were symbolically to divide the heavens and the earth into north and south, and were named Tat and Tattoo. The meaning of these words are almost identical to those of Boaz and Jachin. According to the same writer, these pillars had each a cube on top, the one representing the heavens and the other the earth. Brother Churchward states that the four cross lines represent a cube, the Egyptians not being able to draw in perspective of that at that time. Now we know that up to the time of Galileo, early in the 17th century, the earth was believed to be flat, so that this change must have been made since that time, and I think we may approve of the bringing these pillars into consonance with our present knowledge of the shape of the earth while retaining the original meaning given to them by our ancient brethren in Egypt. But the present explanation of the tracing board in the second degree in Fellowcraft Lodges is a stumbling block to newly passed brethren who are informed that the two pillars which stood at the entrance of King Solomon's temple were surmounted by two spherical globes representing the celestial and terrestrial worlds. In our New Zealand workings these are happily omitted. In symbols and legends which he write, which the writer states are also the specimens of the style and architecture with which Moses must have been familiar. Here we find two cubes on top of each of the pillars. These may, be may also present heaven and earth, but I must leave it to a more competent critic to decide which is right, the one 
or the two cubes on top of the pillars, or are both right, some having one cube and some having two. So there are some of Brother Wallace's thoughts on the pillar and the globe. And reviewing that, I have to say that uh, I need to bone up a little bit more on my ancient names. Holy cow, if I butchered any of those names, I apologize. But that's the best that I was doing with the best that I got. That's all part of the rough Ashler thing. But I just want to say that I want to thank everyone who's uh, been putting comments in here on the website or emailing me. I greatly appreciate them. Uh, hopefully that we have some ideas that are coming up. I don't know, maybe do a bit of a format change. Maybe we'll do that when we hit our, our midlife crisis in around podcast 40. But we'll, uh, we'll just keep working away for now. So thanks for listening to The Digital Freemason. Again, I've been a host, Scott, and I've enjoyed our time together. If you'd like a transcript of this podcast, please feel free to visit our website at www.kinggeorgelodge.com. And if you have any other comments or ideas for further podcasts, please feel free to email me at podcast at kinggeorgelodge.com. So until next time, be sure to keep the shiny side up.